Welcome to Art Fictions. I'm artist and writer Gillian Knipe, and once again a warm welcome to art critic and author Elizabeth Fullerton, who is guest hosting this episode. Today she discusses the fascinating sculptural, photographic and collage work of Hannah Hughes, and together they wade through the waves by Virginia Woolf. I've not read this text myself. In fact, my introduction to Wolf's writing was only recent, and that was through the amazing sculptor Francis Richardson, who was my guest for episode 15. So while The Wave sounds like a lyrical masterpiece, I do question the sea as a romantic metaphor for the circular, rhythmic nature of life. Perhaps it's only really part of the picture. I mean, it has me thinking about contemporary ideas around the seven ages of a lifetime. So this is the mind-body theory that we experience multiple primes of life, where each major age brings different strengths to the fore. So that's from the rapid development of visual and auditory systems in early childhood, to exciting, exploratory risk-taking amongst teenagers, right up to the wise reasoning espoused by philosophers, which hits its true stride in our 70s. So for many of us, there's plenty more rich times ahead. Let's hear what Elizabeth and Hannah have to say. It's not quite a novel. It's more of a stream of consciousness. Hello and welcome to Art Fictions. I'm Elizabeth Fullerton and this week I have the artist Hannah Hughes and we'll be discussing The Waves by Virginia Woolf. The Waves is an experimental novel written by Virginia Woolf in 1931, centred around six friends, three boys and three girls, as they move from childhood to old age. It sounds pretty straightforward, yet it's anything but, and the factual content is secondary. It's written as a series of poetic soliloquies describing the different characters' sensory impressions, emotions and feelings about their lives and about each other. Each chapter begins with a lyrical prose description of the waves breaking on a stretch of shoreline, at first as the sun rises, with all the optimism, clarity and freshness of the new day. As the characters grow older, more worldly and less hopeful, the sunlight on the waves loses its sharpness with the lengthening of the shadows and fuzziness of outlines moving towards dusk. You could say it's a book about multiple identities, about consciousness and thought patterns and what makes up an individual. It's completely brilliant. So... My guest today, Hannah Hughes, whose work is just getting more and more exciting. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Hannah makes exquisite works that sit in a twilight zone between two and three dimensions and are rooted in an appreciation of the discarded and the overlooked. Hannah is perhaps best known for her Flatland series of collaged photographs of modernist-looking forms sourced from the negative spaces around and between bodies and objects in magazines or catalogues. She reassembled these cutouts in a way that breathed volume into the shapes, creating intriguing sculptural relationships between them. These evolved into her Mirror Image series, which took the original idea of negative spaces and complicated it to create a new visual language, which I hope she will elaborate on in the course of our discussion. In the past year, she's experimented with sculpture. For her superb joint show, The Gleaners, with Olivia Bax at Sid Motion Gallery last November, she made delicate porcelain casts of forms made from paper pulp packaging material, elevating these waste materials to a more permanent valued status as sculptures, which she set against specially designed wallpaper, 
again, orchestrating a tension between the flat and three-dimensional. So Hannah, I'm so glad that you chose The Waves. I've wanted to read it ever since I interviewed Carolee Schneeman in 2017. And she said she got hold of The Waves from a library traveling van living in rural Pennsylvania. And she described sitting in a barn, shivering with the transformation it offered. Tell me why it was your choice. Wow. Well, that's amazing to hear that. And it's funny because I think every artist that I've kind of spoken to about choosing it or reading it at the moment, everyone seems to have both read it and really loved it. But yeah, what a great description. I can't really live up to that. Virginia Woolf is definitely a writer that I loved from when I was about 17, when I first discovered Orlando. So I really wanted to choose her, but The Waves is actually a book that I discovered later. And This is a book that probably resonates more with my practice. As you say, thank you for that lovely description of my work. You know, it's rooted in collage and I wanted to kind of choose a book that had a sort of a similar sensibility, something that has that aspect of transformation, but also that was built of fragments and and pieces and, and felt as though it was a sort of a book in flux and all of these sort of things that have been reconfigured as a whole. So all of my work revolves around fragments and holes and piecing things together and cutting them apart. And, you know, scissors really are kind of like my tool. The waves really appeal to my interest in the boundaries between things and like how they can be explored and broken down. Yeah, I can see that. In fact, it makes sense to just read the opening to explain to people who haven't read it how there's no single stabilizing authorial voice to guide the reader. So I'm just going to read the opening soliloquies. I see a ring, said Bernard, hanging above me. It quivers and hangs in a loop of light. I see a slab of pale yellow, said Susan, spreading away until it meets a purple stripe. I hear a sound, said Rhoda, cheap, chirp cheap, chirp, going up and down. I see a globe, said Neville, hanging down in a drop against the enormous flanks of some hill. I see a crimson tassel, said Ginny, twisted with gold threads. I hear something stamping, said Louis. A great beast's foot is chained. It stamps and stamps and stamps. So when I opened the book and I read it, I thought, what the hell is going on? (laughs) And so you immediately get that signal. This isn't a book that I'm going to just be flicking the pages and thinking of what I'm going to have for dinner. This is going to require serious concentration. But it's so rewarding. It's so amazing. I have to say, I absolutely love To the Lighthouse. And for me, this is right up there in terms of, as you say, the resistance of genre which this does more than any of the others in a way. And also just plunging you in and making you work right from the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that beginning section is really good to sort of demonstrate that sense of, well, concatenation, really, that idea of like one thing leads into the other. You shift quickly from Bernard to Susan to Rhoda to Neville. They're very young. They're children at this point at the beginning of the book and and they're just sort of observing things. And then obviously as they get older through the book, these passages get longer and richer and more beautiful. Every single sentence and passage is just incredible. In my copy here in the introduction, they write that she put on the manuscript of the waves, um, the author would be glad if the following pages were not read as a novel. She thought of it more as a play poem. And in that sense, even though it's not condensed like a poem, every single sentence has poetry in it. 
Yeah, in fact, funnily enough, those soliloquies, although they're interesting, as you say, they get richer and richer and much more enticing in a way. But you anyway get a sense from the first interlude, the first poetic description of what you're going to be getting because it's so incredibly lyrical. I mean, I'll just read that very first paragraph. It goes, The sun had not yet risen. The sea was indistinguishable from the sky, except that the sea was slightly creased as if a cloth had wrinkles in it. Gradually, as the sky whitened, a dark line lay on the horizon, dividing the sea from the sky, and the grey cloth became barred with thick strokes moving, one after another, beneath the surface, following each other, pursuing each other perpetually. You can really imagine that with the waves. You know, it does, it really is like a dark grey cloth before the sun comes up with those bars. And then she describes a woman's arm with a lamp as the sun moves higher in the sky. And then there's this whole wonderful description there. But yeah, the language is so exquisite just to savour each sentence. It's not something that you can rush through at all. No, definitely. It's more like a stream, isn't it? Something that you just sort of have to let yourself kind of flow along in a way. And as you say, at the beginning, it's quite a shock because you're sort of like having to learn a new way of reading, really. It's like learning a new language. But then once you get into it, there's all this sort of pleasure, really, of jumping in and out of those characters. As with a stream, you just have to let yourself go with the flow. It's got that very particular rhythmic structure and those interludes are what kind of keeps a structure within the novel or the not novel. Yes. I think there's about this 10, isn't there, of these interludes, which kind of basically like describe the passage of the sun over the course of the day, as well as like the flow of the tide. And there's a house in it and like particularly a room of a house, which is like maybe a kitchen or a dining room, I think, because it has like a sort of a still life arrangement, doesn't it, of plates and knives and flowers and things like that and these scenes feel to me like they're that sort of core of the book in a way in that the characters sort of arranged arranging themselves throughout the novel always relate back to sort of the rhythm of that space and you know I was thinking about how it's a kind of a metaphysical sort of landscape in a way and it's constantly changing throughout the day and obviously this book spans years and yet this metaphysical landscape has a pattern of the sun you know so you're following the shifting change of light which is obviously kind of talking about the seasons of a life cycle of like a lifetime it's a very strange space and it sort of feels to me like a de Chirico painting that's so um, interesting mm. I could read a couple of bits from one of my favorites interludes and then sort of thinking about it with that de Chirico kind of imagery in mind I'd love you to yeah I think the interlude that you just read was at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. So this one's sort of in the middle and it's just as like the sun is starting to get very high and the light is getting really intense. And at this point, everything gets really quite fierce. The book talks about the waves falling with a concussion. Everything's steely and sharp and quite violent in this interlude. So, you know, you're feeling the waves are crashing, the sun's getting really high, things are starting to ripen to the point of almost rotting. So it's a kind of a point in the book where, you know, you're sort of like midway through the passage of their lives or maybe at the end of their youth or their innocence. So within this room where we have the still life, I'll read these two bits. The sun fell in sharp wedges inside the room. Whatever the light touched became dowered with a fanatical existence. A plate was like a white lake. A knife looked like a dagger of ice. Suddenly tumblers revealed themselves upheld by streaks of light. And then 
Everything was without shadow. A jar was so green that the eye seemed sucked up through a funnel by its intensity and stuck to it like a limpet. Then shapes took on mass and edge. Here was the boss of a chair. Here was the bulk of a cupboard. And as the light increased, flocks of shadow were driven before it and conglomerated and hung in many pleated folds in the background. I really love that idea of this sun that was like driving shadows around. And as the sun, you know, like moves, these shadows get long, you know, they get very intense. There are shadows within shadows, but other things are like in this sharp detail. I love this idea of things having mass becoming really nebulous. You know, all these kind of shifts between sort of like solidity and fleetingness that you kind of like get throughout the book. Yes, totally. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, there is a certain linear drive through the book because we are moving through a life cycle, as you say. But then again, we also are aware that that life cycle is going to be renewed with other life cycles when that one finishes. So there is a continual ebb and flow, Mm -hmm. isn't there? So you get the waves both in the language itself and the imagery, but also in the structure and the threading through of phrases and motifs that keep coming back, whether they're related to one character or another, you get these eddies, don't you, in the language that link all the characters. So yeah, I think it's so beautiful. And the way that Virginia Woolf uses these interludes to come back to the same shoreline and the same garden and the same house and those same objects And yet we are seeing them in a completely new perspective with each description because the light has changed and the shadows have changed and time has changed. And so they completely shift. We were saying, weren't we, that it's been so hard to find passages to choose because there are so many. It's impossible to pick one. Yeah, everything is underlined in this book. Um, There are so many post-it notes. (laughs) I think it's kind of what's amazing about the book in a way is that, you know, it's so full of all of these kind of fragments and things that you can just feel like you can dip into it and just find something incredible, like, you know, sort of a jewel of a sentence in it really easily but that it also feels so complete as well. You know, thinking about this structure, about this sort of cycle of the sea that kind of holds it together is a bit like a grid or something in a a modernist painting. But all these fragments feel like a complete work in themselves and like to craft together like fragmented impressions into something that feels whole. You know, that's why it's a work of genius. And she's found a way to kind of make something solid that has no narrative structure. You know, the sea is a stand-in for that. It gives a rhythm rather than a narrative. And the fact that it's cyclical and that you know that the beginning is the end and the end is the beginning, you know, sort of in terms of when the book ends, the waves will keep rolling that in itself destroys the idea of this sort of like heroic narrative, which is something that I find yeah, really most appealing about it. Yeah, me too. What about any passages of the characters themselves, either their interior soliloquies or any descriptive parts? Yes, I've sort of drawn out kind of little fragments for all of them, really, because in a way, what's interesting is like seeing them sort of together, isn't it? That idea that you read one passage and then they're kind of mirrored or intersected by another person. So it's kind of, you know, what we understand of their characters is always in relationship to the thing that went before it and the thing that went after it, which is how these kind of like fragments work in the whole rather than on their own. Yeah, totally. 
in lots of ways they feel really solid and then they feel really fleeting or nebulous the characters because they're really uncertain of themselves and like they're not really sure if they exist at all like without each other to confirm their presence in in a way so I kind of like the passages really where they're asking like who they are and whether they make any sense alone which they frequently do actually yes Uh, they they very frequently (laughs) say who am I or what is meaning what is language you know, can it contain identity, those kind of things, especially Bernard or Neville, because both of those use language so much. He says, I am not one and simple, but complex and many. Yes, Um, Bernard. Yes. He's the one who kind of feels the most that he's multiple characters. So he wants to be the narrator of the gang. His idea of himself is as a writer that he kind of wants to tell everybody's story. And he really sees himself as multidimensional. He gets very upset if anyone tries to sort of flatten him, which is yeah. in real contrast to someone like Rhoda, the character who feels paper thin. Yes. But they all kind of like have a sense of having that sort of vulnerability as a character of like the feeling thin and weightless and then like trying to find their own solidity, like precisely really because they have been plucked out of a narrative that Wolf's kind of rejected. And that's kind of the appeal for me because of my work being sort of rooted in collage. It feels like she's cut them out. So they feel a bit untethered, like sort of like they're standing under a spotlight. You know, I think you, <laughs> you said before you felt like they're all quite lonely, but it's because they are cut out and they don't have any of this drama of narrative. It's all about this kind of idea of pure sensation. And we're just trying to feel that kind of a, along with them. I suppose when you cut things out and remove it from its context, even abstracted forms, it just becomes strange. They're a bit like those objects in the room. They kind of cast shadows kind of on each other. Sometimes, sometimes they shine, you know, and that's kind of like how mm. they sort of move between that very solidness and then that kind of nebulousness. And that's in the landscape and that's in the characters. So I did find an example of that in the landscape where it sort of talks about this sort of shifting between solidity and fleetingness mm. Uh, mm. Or, or translucency that you kind of feel in all the characters. But in that landscape, it says, in the interlude, this is, Gradually, the dark bar on the horizon became clear as if the sediment in an old wine bottle had sunk and left the glass green, which I thought was really beautiful. This yeah. idea of transition and then, you know, sort of things become transparent in the light quite a lot. You know, there's always leaves that suddenly become transparent and buildings that seem porous or there's a wonderful passage. that says cupboards and chairs melted their brown masses into one huge obscurity. Yeah, so I was looking a lot throughout the book for those kinds of descriptions, really, those sort of moments where things find and lose their sort of mass and meaning. Yes, I love how she does that. And what about each of the characters? We mentioned Mm. Bernard, who is sociable and amiable and fashions phrases out of every experience. And Rhoda, who is the dreamer who finds reality unbearable. But then you've got Louis, who is highly intelligent, but he's held back by his shame about his Australian roots and perpetually insecure about not fitting into society. And then you've got Neville, who's a scholar and a poet who needs excessive order. And he's also homosexual, well, closet homosexual, and pins all his passions on one person at a time. And then you've got Ginny, who lives life guided by her bodily senses, and she's entirely sensuous and revels in attracting men. And then you've got Susan, who's the earth mother, who's jealous and passionate and loves and hates in equal measure, and whose goal is to have children and live in the countryside at one with nature. And then they all, as you say, come apart and come together and merge at different times. Yeah, I think we can definitely see those six characters as facets of Wolf 
even though some people have pinned them down to, you know, Susan being like Wolf's sister, Vanessa Bell, or Neville as Ian Forster. But I think you could definitely see each of those characters as facets, couldn't you, of one person? Definitely, yeah. There are lots of things that kind of give you that impression. I mean, one of them is there are obvious memories and kind of symbols and things that they all talk about. And also just in a way, like the critical aspect, you kind of think you can only ever really be this mean about yourself. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, because they're quite bitchy about, I mean, I know friends are too, but there is a criticality that you kind of think feels like self-criticism in some ways. They're like an assemblage, you know, in terms of being like a system. They all kind of form this constellation around a character, Percival, who we don't ever get sort of a first person impression from Percival, really. He's the character that everyone talks about. Yes, Uh, and Neville's in love with deeply. And there's an amazing scene where they're all in a restaurant waiting for Percival to arrive and their different manners of waiting So Bernard is wanting to speak to the waiter and he's all excited and looking around and he says, there's no stability in this world. Who is to say what meaning there is in anything? Who is to foretell the flight of a word? It is a balloon that sails over treetops. To speak of knowledge is futile. And then Neville is sitting there not having this ecstatic thing going on at all. He's feeling really anxious, worrying about whether Percival is going to turn up or not. And he says, already the room with its swing doors, its tables heaped with fruit, with cold joints, where's that wavering, unreal appearance of a place where one waits expecting something to happen? Things quiver as if not yet in being. The blankness of the white tablecloth glares. The hostility, the indifference of other people dining here is oppressive. We look at each other, see that we do not know each other, stare and go off. Such looks are lashes. I feel the whole cruelty and indifference of the world in them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of them feel uncomfortable in that. It really is just Bernard, isn't it, who's kind of in his element amongst all those people. Maybe Ginny loves it too because she's also social and doesn't, feel the sting of kind of being around others but Susan comes in and she's not comfortable at being in London you know she's become a sort of a country person and her and Neville clash at that dinner table he says you know even after all that time that the edges of their meeting are still sharp and that swing door is this amazing point in that room of transition from one thing to another and when he arrives everything changes yeah it does even though he isn't a speaking character there's still all this hope pinned on him I think that's really interesting what you were saying about how, in a way, Wolf is arranging and assembling these characters like you do with your practice, moving around forms and interchanging them and and seeing how they work together. And sometimes they clash and sometimes they don't, or they might have an interesting relationship together. And so she might decide to experiment with that. Mm -hmm. And you're doing similar things in a way, aren't you? Yes. So the edges things I think are so important you know this idea of there being real physical edges there and in her book there's a boundary between one person and another of like what you know and can't know about those people and I think that's the same yeah kind of like working with these collage pieces working with shape and thinking about how shapes interact together and what happens when you put one thing in conversation with another what's that third thing that happens in terms of these characters there are lots of moments in which you feel like the things that happen to one character affect the whole world of another 
Rhoda is the one for me that feels, I mean, she's the most immaterial kind of character of the group. But she has a wonderful passage where she says, month by month, things are losing their hardness. Even my body now lets the light through. My spine is soft like wax near the flame of a candle. I dream, I dream. So she's afraid of sinking or drowning or kind of being blown away. She has a great sense of loss of herself through the loss of someone else. I think that's really kind of interesting about the way that these constellations and kind of like the ecosystem of the group, they feed off of each other and they kind of need each other. So Ginny is also like a really interesting character in terms of how she operates kind of within the group. She has many lovers and she relies on other people for her sense of identity. I really like within her sort of idea of her own physicality, I like the references to rooting and planting in the body. So there's a section here where she says, I'm rooted, but I flow, I flutter, I ripple, I stream like a plant in the river, flowing this way, flowing that way, but rooted so that he may come to me. So she's yeah. sort of here of lovers on a dance floor. It's kind of makes her feel like she has a form, but she's also sort of formless as well. And I've been really kind of interested in looking at those ideas and this idea of rooting and planting through dance in my work recently especially like since covid thinking about when we went into lockdown the first time when we were sort of condensed into sort of small spaces and trying to kind of move around at home and navigate each other in the space of the home and that kind of thing and feeling a bit untethered in general I was doing dance cardio and all those kind of things online, like everyone kind of was. And then thinking about choreography and all those ideas of movement kind of infiltrated my collages and photographs at that point. So I was kind of very interested in this idea of her thinking about how she used her body to kind of root herself to a place to plant herself into the ground, but how she might also flow and ripple or, you know, these kind of these words like quiver is a word that kind of is used throughout the book, which is kind of wonderful as well, isn't it? When you were talking about Ginny and dancing, I suddenly thought about your recent work, Hinge, that you made for Entract, a programme of temporary interventions by artists using the windows of the ICs gallery in Arles in France. Mm. And I was thinking of that because the work that you made for that has these forms which look like they're engaged in a dance. They look like they're curling around each other or embracing or jostling. And then I was shocked when you told me that the work is actually flat. So (laughs) can you tell us about Hinge, please? And how it seems like you've taken a sort of architectural turn with that. Yes, I mean, it's nice to hear that you kind of see the movement in that and that you were thinking about them as these sort of like moving characters. Because the work was a lot about movement, but sort of thinking about it in relationship to architectural space. So the gallery itself has this programme where they offer three panes of glass, which are essentially a folding door. You know, it looks like a window, but it's a bifolding door that's one of the entrances to the gallery. It's a vinyl that goes onto a window, so it is very flat. It was really good at that time because it was when we were all in lockdown and it was something that could be seen, which something in the inside the gallery couldn't. It was also at the threshold of the building, so it felt like it was inside and outside at the same time. Basically, you have these three panes. It becomes one big artwork, but it's actually three distinct sections and they're bisected by the frame, basically, of the door. So I was thinking a lot about 
this idea of this liminal space and doing my research about thresholds in general and superstition around them. I'm quite a superstitious person anyway, you know, so I'm always kind of muttering to myself when I'm walking under things or like avoiding walking over drains and all those kind of things. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I was kind of I was thinking how funny it is that, you know, we still like have these kind of pervasive superstitions around the doorway and that it's quite a charged space even now and that that's gone back centuries and you know every culture almost really has some mythology around or superstition around the doorway or the entrance to a place so this idea of it's a transitionary space it's crossing over from one thing into another and so it has all these kind of like links to sort of like ancient mythology in terms of the underworld and that kind of thing so I was looking at Greek mythology and then Roman mythology, and that really appealed to me, these sort of characters that came out of there, partly because Arles is a Roman city and it felt historically interesting to look at the sort of superstitions that would have been there around these kind of thresholds and doorways, but also because they just really took doorways seriously. They had quite a lot of deities associated with these kind of boundaries and gates and beginnings and endings. Well, so overarching, really important deities like Janus. There are also kind of deities that would look after things like keys, very specific areas of the door. So I was mostly interested in one called Cardia, whose name actually means door pivot or hinge. She was the protector of the hinges and given that role because the hinge obviously being the most important part of kind of keeping things out, keeping elements out from the underworld. So she's a protector and, and I was interested because I had this folding doorway that was intersected by these frames and I kind of wanted my work to pivot around that point to have that feeling of movement as well as that sort of transition from inside to outside a kind of an axis to move through. So mm. each of these shapes kind of negotiate each other through an idea of hinging on an axis. How interesting and who knew about Cardia and goddesses of hinges and keys? That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. But are those forms collaged or are they all scanned into one piece that simply looks like it is 3D? Yeah, it's a digital collage because of the scale of that one. And that was interesting for me because work is all about edges so really the edge of that work became the door frame so the door became part of the work so each kind of piece was sort of individually made and scanned and then digitally put together as a sort of one big artwork but because it was flattened by the way that you know, it had been produced the frame of the door itself became that sort of cut became the edge that it could pivot around most of the work sort of like the edges are really like the most important thing so usually they'll be kind of constructed so that you can see those you know like a traditional collage and they're sort of like layered so that you can see sort of like the edges internally the edges that have been concealed as well as the edges that are revealed in the work. Mm. So Hannah it seems like lockdown was really generative for your practice because you also started working with these throwaway packaging materials. Was it inevitable that you would progress into sculpture do you think? Yeah I mean I've been sort of collecting things for a long time these kind of odds and ends that I've been thinking of in terms of sculpture and Sid Motion asked Olivia and I to do the show Gleaners together and that sort of came out of a conversation that Olivia and I had had in her studio about her work and then Sid wanted to continue that dialogue and host it in the gallery between her work and mine and Olivia's obviously a sculptor and I'd been 
during lockdown been collecting all this sort of pulp paper packaging that you mentioned in the beginning and starting to make sort of sculptural photographs out of it and I started to cast these pieces and thinking of them as small ceramic sculptures so it sort of developed through this sort of like conversation that Olivia and I were having we realized that there was a sort of a bridge that was forming across our work which kind of related to using things up and not letting things go to waste the show itself was called Gleaners, which took its name from the Agnes Varda film, The Gleaners and I, because it was thinking about this idea of like not letting things go to waste and, you know, using things up. But we were also kind of thinking about what it meant to be using up scraps from the home or things that were quite sort of insignificant and marginal. Olivia was making all these new works that were kind of using bits of packaging too, from polystyrene packaging trays and things that people have been buying a lot of um, new things during that time. And then I was collecting all of these kind of bits of pulp that were protecting fragile items. And I was collecting them from like things that I'd been buying, but also like friends were buying things and then sending me stuff. So I get these amazing sort of like care packages of everybody else's leftover recycling. But we were kind of thinking about it in terms of being quite domestic, like certainly the stuff that I was collecting felt very domestic. And I picked out a passage from something that Miriam Shapiro and uh, Melissa Mayer wrote, which related to this term that they coined called femage, which was written in a, an essay called Waste Not Want Not, an inquiry into what women saved and assembled that was published in Heresies magazine. And they, at the very beginning of like this essay, they quote Virginia Woolf talking about the loose drifting stuff of life and how she'd like to see it coalesced into a mould transparent enough to reflect the light of our life and yet aloof as a work of art. So they go on to imagine what this drifting stuff of life is. And in their imaginations, it's kind of lace and quills and photographs and bits of cloth, all that kind of thing, like Victorian domestic material mm. Like mm. Scraps that women would save and assemble for themselves. And they were kind of thinking about this in terms of its agency. And, you know, this is kind of pre-Cubism, like pre-1912, you know, 1912, when it was claimed by art history she's kind of thinking about other people you know that have been doing this quietly with the things that they had around them sort of unheroically and without any kind of recognition so it was very political and it was linked to the feminist movement and yeah working with things from the margins is really interesting to me like that pulp is all about that it's about throwaway things like the unimportant bits the bits that generally aren't the center of attention and I guess that links back to the waves just in terms of thinking there was a lot of imagery that related to the marginals taking centre stage. Yes, the ordinary that she makes incredible, her description of the light on a curtain or on the sand, these aren't extraordinary things. These are quite normal things that anyone can have access to. Yeah, as you say, that shaft of light, a shadow, a leaf becomes like a major event. Yeah. Can you talk about this relationship between the mirror image series and these sculptures and your interest in shadows and the neglected? Because it's been a steady progression from flatland, from the negative spaces to working with shadow. And I'd love you to talk about your process so that people can really get an understanding of that. So with Flatland, as you described, thanks for describing the work so beautifully in the beginning. It's lovely. I was cutting out these negative spaces kind of surrounding the body and sometimes, you know, objects, but mainly the body. And 
it was all about finding these overlooked spaces where you know, shadows fall and create these forms that when you cut them out had their own very peculiar sense of volume and through that process I was collecting a lot of cut pieces suddenly you sort of realize over time that by massing enough of them that there was this language kind of emerging through them there were typologies of shape recurring over and over, like all these kind of spheres and orbs and columns and all kinds of shapes. So I was starting to sort of catalogue them more. And it's an ongoing process, really, at the moment. It's sort of like working through it more like a glossary. And I was reading uh, Ursula Le Guin's Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, and yes. she, which is brilliant, isn't it? She was mentioning about Virginia Woolf having this idea of working on a glossary so that she could kind of invent her own language. The more I started to think of it like a language and I was kind of creating these wallpapers and things that you could sort of see them as an index and see the shapes on their own, like not in an assemblage. You know, you kind of understood how they operated within these structures that I was creating. Then I thought, well, I kind of wanted to use them more like a language and like learn how to use them. Mirror image really came from that and trying to recreate the forms myself so it really is just a process of mirroring and inverting sort of like what the pieces that I cut out from magazines using them as shapes rather than as content Mm. and I make still life arrangements in my studio with lighting setups where I use them as kind of props really where I take that edge and shine a light through it create new shadows onto sort of backdrops that I make in the studio and then re-photograph those shadows and you get the mirror impression basically of the shape that was originally cut out. That sort of a process can continually be made and remade. It's that process of like, you know, unraveling something and then building it back up again and then taking it through various print processes. You know, so I'm photographing things, I'm reprinting them, I'm printing them in litho sometimes so that I can get all those incredible kind of print dots when I blow them up or using other sort of commercial printers to print onto sort of like magazine type papers and really reconstructing the language myself. So you're basically creating, they're almost hieroglyphics, and from these shapes, these forms that initially were the actual forms that made your collages, they're now being used as the props for creating a new set of forms through their shadows. So they're now actually redundant as forms. They're no longer the positive. They become the negative. (laughs) So the negative becomes a double negative almost. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then again, that's that relationship to casting. You know, photography and sculpture is very aligned in that sense that you have these kind of ideas of positive and negatives. The inverse of one thing creates something new. So within the sculptures that I'm making, you know, they are cast out of this packaging because they're molded around objects, sort of cupping and holding things. They really have a very similar form to these kind of like negative spaces that you find around the body as well. They're very organic. So I've been creating all these very small pieces, making plaster molds of those and then press molding paper porcelain into those molds. And then also in that show, there was some larger works that kind of come out of mirror image called Tuck. And they were slightly different because I'd scaled up. So these Mm. were small collages that I'd scanned and then blew up. By scanning and printing them in that way, you could see where all the edges were in the original collage and where they pressed together and all these layers. You can kind of see its internal sort of structure of like all the bits that are concealed under the top shapes. I sort of need a physical edge in the work. 
and I wanted to kind of create another way of like accessing or entering the image. So those images have a second photographic fragment that's been inserted, like sliced into the surface of that photograph and tucked inside it. So it kind of created a space or a gap. I love that. And I wanted to trace with my finger over what I thought was the ridged seam. But as I went closer and closer, I couldn't find a ridged seam. It was just a photograph, but it was actually flat. And the ridge or the edge was elsewhere, as you say, where you'd sliced open. So you were completely confounding expectations. And it was really hard to understand because it just was going against what your eye is telling the brain. It's funny how we read the idea of something being two or three dimensional, you know, so much about how we read light and shadow. Yeah. You know, I made a piece of work about that in collaboration with Simon Hughes, my husband, who kind of works in visual effects. And we made a work using film. We put in a collage work into this software and then kind of got it to read it using its quite rudimentary sort of like 3D understanding. So it was reading the volume of this collage through its understanding of light and shadow like through its understanding of what that volume should be and we gave it all these different parameters creating sort of almost like a sculpture of like what it thought the sculpture was from the flat two-dimensional image but the work in a sense it's not about illusion it's very material literally everything about shape and surface is determined by the materials that I use like if one form ends in one of my collages in this kind of still life arrangement or sculptural arrangement that you see it's because an actual piece of photographic material ended and the shadow can be traced back to like even an original cut form you know it's not a window to a world that doesn't exist in that sense like I've been doing all this drawing recently and I just can't make a composition on a flat piece of paper you know I have to cut the paper and I have to slide something through or kind of have to collage it in some way in order to have a real literal edge in the picture plane oh isn't that interesting yeah but photography has always been a central plank hasn't it of your practice yeah definitely I mean for the Gleaner show for example there were just some straight photographs in there which were making arrangements from the sculptural forms like before they became porcelain so just working with them as paper pulp so they kind of form bridges really between the sculpture and the photography and the collage that was such a great show by the way anyone listening please go and look at it on Hannah's website and on Sid Motion Gallery website it really was just fantastic how your work spoke to Olivia's Talking about collage and slicing and cutting, I just have to read a really short description in the book. I loved the way she uses slice here. The sun by this time has sunk lower in the sky, so this is moving into more dusky time. Birds swooped and circled high up in the air. Some raced in the furrows of the wind and turned and sliced through them as if they were one body cut into a thousand shreds. Birds fell like a net descending on the treetops. Wonderful. Yeah, I just thought that was so amazing. I could just see these shreds just slicing through the sky and making an artwork almost in the sky with these birds diving and swooping. But that's just one of millions in the book, oh, isn't it? Yeah, so many. And there's so many of these moments with these incredible kind of like shards of light but that she's created into these kind of sculptures. You're absolutely um, right. They are sculptural, her descriptions of light, especially, and shadow. Yeah. There was another fantastic description of all the different characters. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I see Louis stone-carved, sculpturesque, Neville scissor-cutting, exact. 
hope that doesn't mean I'm Neville. <laughs> You're not. Or to be Ginny. <laughs> Ginny dancing like a flame, febrile, hot over dry earth. Susan with eyes like lumps of crystal. And Rhoda, the nymph of the fountain, always wet. Yes. I think in general, the way that she's always alluding to like these edges people are kind of described as having these kind of like edges or sharp edges sometimes and you're constantly aware of crossing boundaries from one character to another which is quite exhilarating I think you feel like you're under the skin of each of these characters and you love them all like in different ways they never overlap you jump from one thing to another because they're these figments and you see things from these different perspectives each time you know which is sort of what I'm doing in those tuck works you know where there's that dual perspective where you kind of have to look at those ones from the side as well as from the front there are two ways of looking at them and you kind of feel this sort of sense of dimension in her work where you jump from one form to another one character to another but you're aware that you can't see the bit that's concealed because there are all these other spaces you're aware of the negatives as much as you're aware of the positives or what you do know what's concealed and what's revealed is is sort of equally important. Yes, and while they do merge, they are contained in themselves as well. It's really strange. I know Bernard is more nebulous, but each of them, when they meet right near the end in Hampton Court, and they've all moved on and sort of solidified in their lives, in their characters, in their personalities, and they realise they can't go back So there is a certain setting of them as well, like casting almost. They've become more set as they get older. And I think that's something that Bernard finds disappointing. So there is also an acknowledgement of the fact that a moment passes, we cross a point in life where that fluidity Mm. isn't available anymore. That optimism early on where anything is possible and you can flow from one type of being into another, it does solidify as they get older and crystallize. It's so funny, isn't it? Hannah, let's just spend the entire evening picking out quotes and let's just forget about this recording. (laughs) (laughs) But if we can't talk the night away... (laughs) Um, I need to ask you what artists have been influential in your practice I mean yeah there are so many I guess sort of like artists that I refer to now or sort of recently that work with collage and fragments and that kind of thing in various ways was Al Loving and his really incredible textile war hangings and rag paper collages that he made so I've been really loving those recently and artists like Eva Hesser's been a really long-term influence I guess thinking about shape and repetition and that sort of crossover between sculpture and painting in that same way that I'm kind of interested I guess in Wolf's kind of idea of that crossovers you know between things like intersection of novel and poem I kind of look for artists you know like Anna Mendieta or people like that that span across various practices and where the work can't quite fit in where you're like is it performance or installation or is it a photograph where those boundaries are a bit blurred and at the moment I'm kind of looking a lot at Hilma F. Klimt and really interested in all of her notebooks there's this incredible book called Notes and Methods where you can see all of her glossary basically of of all the kind of forms that went into her paintings or that were in these incredible notebooks that she made throughout her life the writing is really extraordinary you know all the meanings there's all these kind of codes and numbers and reference systems like within these 
drawings and sketches that then became paintings that have all these very vivid descriptions of messages, basically, or kind of meanings behind all of the forms. And they are really, really extraordinary. So that's something that I'm looking at. And also Amy Silman is kind of an interesting artist to look at in terms of shape. And in a show that she made for MoMA, I think, called The Shape of Shape, she made an incredible zine with this essay on shape as a marginal subject, but one that's really worthy of being something addressed in its own right. And I always talk about Brancusi's photographs. They really something that was kind of at the beginning of thinking about collaged form and its relationship to both sculpture and photography. He took his own photographs and kind of really made them an art form in their own right. And they're really beautiful. They kind of solidify space really in a way as well. I'm interested in them. And his studio was so incredible. Like it had all of his sculptures around with these amazing skylights. It felt like in his sculptures that he was kind of moving them around like a kind of choreography where he would sort of set them up into these various arrangements and then take pictures so that the pictures were about the negative space in the image was just as important as the sculpture, you know, those kind of relationships yeah. of space in the room and the light. A bit like, you know, that Virginia Woolf, those solid chunks of light that she would describe yeah. so sculpturally. Wedges, yeah. I do like to collect these old sculpture catalogues and things, you know, where all the images get really sort of crunchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> where the photography or the printing sort of like has a materiality in its own right as well that kind of somehow like merges with the sculptural material yes the other people that I've been looking at over the last sort of year or two um, in terms of my own work was um dancers and choreographers like Yvonne Rayner and Trisha Brown and people like that sort of thinking about seriality and repetition you know that sort of links with like looking at Hester's work but also just that transformative aspect of working with everyday movements like very ordinary minimal movement and then transforming that into something incredible. Hannah I'm seeing your sculptures getting bigger and bigger I foresee a future where there is performance around them or between them. (laughs) I just suddenly had a vision when you were speaking of your sculptures being (laughs) life-size. Well, yes, I mean, it's something that I think about because of that sort of relationship to the body. At the moment, they have a relationship to the hand. And they do anyway have a relationship to the body, abstracted, don't they? Because the original forms were coming from the negative space often around the body. Yeah, like in the images, yeah, definitely. So Mm -hmm. like with the existing sculptures, they are the scale of objects they're much more hand-sized but yeah as you say like in the images in the collages those sort of photographic images definitely their roots are surrounding the body so how could you move around them in terms of a choreography in some ways they form sets so it's definitely something that I'm thinking about like the wallpapers and all those kind of things you know almost like a form of notation this is what I mean I think it is just getting more and more exciting your work I'm loving watching it unfold (laughs) thank you but what about books what are you reading now well I have like a pile next to my bed that I call the guilt pile the book that I just can't put down at the moment is a new book by prototype publishing that's just come out It's Intertitles. It's an anthology at the intersection of writing and visual art edited by Jess Chandler, Amy Selby, Hannah Norali and Lynton Talbot. So this is a lot of writing by artists and it's really great. 
mean, I read a lot of biographies. I read Yvonne Rayner's Feelings of Facts. Marina Abramovich, Walk Through Walls is really amazing. Okay. And I actually recommend listening to that one. She narrates it herself and it's just amazing to listen to. Yeah, but it feels like a performance completely. I think she has done it as a performance as well, maybe in the past, as a durational work. I actually listened to that twice in a row. I've been reading some fiction. I discovered Sheila Hetty, who is a really interesting writer, and Siri Hustved, Memories of the Future and the Blazing World. Are you reading The Blazing World? No, you lent it to me and I read it and I loved it. She's an incredible writer in terms of that evocative descriptions of artwork. It's almost like she's a writer who's also an artist. She's so able to conjure up these like vast herbs, like an artist's work, you know. Because usually when people write about being an artist, they might describe a few pieces of work, but she really does invent, you know, whole exhibitions and things for you to kind of walk through. And what about podcasts, TV series, films, music, anything that connects with your studio practice or just generally? I'd love to say I don't watch TV. <laughs> I watch TV all the time. But I just don't feel like anything kind of sticks, really. But podcasts are something that I listen to all the time. Obviously, this one. <laughs> and Emma Cousins' podcast, which is brilliant. I chats with artists. I have a massive list of arts ones that I listen to. And I also listen to things like In Our Time and stuff like that, which are always really interesting. Yeah, I listen to some American ones, like Bad at Sports is kind of one of the ones that I've listened to for the longest. It's based out of Chicago. And there's a really good one called Sound and Vision by Brian Alfred. He has interviewed some really, really interesting artists over the years. You know, it's been going a long time, so there are loads. Yeah, and obviously talk art as well. I listen to in The Great Women Artists. And what about exhibitions coming up? Well, I have a nice sort of quiet time at the moment, to be honest. You know, whilst things are in discussion, I'm currently just taking the time to build up new work and kind of experiment with things. During lockdown, I was supposed to be in Landskrona Festival in Sweden, but our group project that was curated by Rodrigo Arantia, that's been put back a year because we couldn't travel and was at the waiting place, a space in Suffolk called The Art Station. That was a male art show that's been curated by Anne-Marie James and Emily Godden. They invited artists to kind of respond on postcards that they sent out, you know, with an artwork that responded to a poem about waiting by uh, Dr. Seuss. The exhibition is a physical show, it's there, but it's also got this virtual environment as well. It's really fun. It's like a space you have to choose an avatar and kind of like walk around the show kind of virtually. If you're there with other people, you can kind of talk to them through your microphone. And <laughs> yeah, we did a really great like artist walkthrough where, you know, you're all sort of like walking around together like you're actually in a virtual show. Your avatars are chatting. Yeah. Away. What were you, Hannah? I think I was really boring. I didn't realise that you could change them when I first went in. So I kind of had one of the standard robots, but there are quite a few that you can choose from. I quite fancied the fox. <laughs> <laughs> the fox is great. Well, Hannah, thank you so much. It has been an absolute delight having you. I think we could go on and on forever. (laughs) But thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, listeners. And also thanks to guest artist Hannah Hughes, as well as today's host, Elizabeth Fullerton. As always, please rate and subscribe if you enjoyed this episode as it helps others locate the podcast. Happy reading and art viewing till next time.